Recently, we've been trying to get um, our two-year-old daughter, Charlotte, to eat politely at the table. Well, not even politely, just uh, humanly. We've tried punishment, pleading, negotiating. Uh, recently, we switched tactics to more of a, a positive approach. Uh, we bought a packet of stickers, uh, and if she eats nicely, she gets to choose whichever sticker she wants. Uh, we've actually placed the stickers in her line of sight uh, on our pinboard in the kitchen. She can see the prize. And for the most part, it's actually working. There's something about getting to see those glorious Peppa Pig stickers hanging on the pinboard that motivates her to stop throwing her beans on the floor and squeezing the jelly between her fingers. Seeing her future reality, seeing uh, that vision before her helps her to live in the here and now. In the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of the events of human history, where all history is heading. And the intention is to motivate God's people to live in the here and now. If you've been following with us in our series in Revelation, you'll have noticed um, from our Bible reading some similar themes and phrases. And that's because the book of Revelation is apocalyptic in genre. It's not meant to be read or understood in the same way as, let's say, a, a linear narrative. Um, it's more cyclical, so as well as having uh, lots of imagery and symbolism, we often revisit the same scenes time and again in a cyclical fashion, uh, viewing the same glorious events but from different perspectives. I really like the analogy of a, of a football match. During the review of a match, the pundits will look at the replay from various angles, the, the lead up to the goals, the crucial passes, uh, the frames where it really could have gone either way, the final push to the closing seconds before the winning victory. The goals are viewed from the sideline, from an aerial perspective, uh, from behind the net to directly in the goal mouth. And it all adds to the drama, to the suspense and to the glory of the game of football. And so it is with Revelation. We've seen the destruction of God's enemies, the triumph of the Lamb, the rescue of his people amidst the cry and praise of heaven. And as well as an increase in intensity with each successive vision, each cycle has actually added something new. It's given his people uh, a greater perspective uh, of these final realities. And so I suppose the question is, what does this specific piece of revelation, what does chapter 19 tell us? And I think it's here for this. It's to reassure God's people that Christ's victory is utterly decisive, that his enemies will perish and that his bride will be redeemed. And if that's the case, then this passage should cause us, his people, to do two things. Firstly, to long for our marriage consummation. And secondly, to live in light of our enemies' destruction and there'll be our two points so firstly long for our marriage consummation if you were with us last week we left from chapter 17 and 18 with Babylon that great city prostitute being condemned and destroyed as a people cried out in horror all access to their material joy the sex and the stuff the pleasure and the plunder had gone and the woes that came out of her were terrifying and yet the perspective from heaven, as we move into chapter 19, it couldn't be more stark. The woes from 17 or 18 are actually drowned out by the hallelujahs in chapter 19. There's no weeping, no sorrow, no sadness around the throne of God, only 
praise. And this praise is directly concerning divine judgment. Verse 1 says, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. All the evil and wickedness that have stood against God and against his people has finally been decisively defeated. Judgment is good. And verse 2 tells us um, that as well as corrupting the earth uh, and the people upon it, the presence of evil was also responsible for the persecution and the destruction of God's holy people. That's why the response from heaven uh, is uh, praise for the fact that God has avenged the blood of his saints. This verse actually harks back to Second Kings. Uh, you'll remember that moment with Jezebel as she um, attacked and murdered and persecuted God's people. And so this has been a long time coming and there's no wonder that this praise is so climactic. It fills the panorama of heaven uh, and it actually seems to build in crescendo as well. Verse one, you've got the multitudes of heaven shouting, but then the camera seems to draw more centrally as we go to verse four, where the 24 elders and the, and the living creatures fall down in worship. These are angelic beings who surround the throne itself. But then we move to verse five. And it says, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. You see, this voice comes from the throne itself and commentators debate whether it's an angelic voice or the voice even of the Son of God himself. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that all of heaven, the redeemed multitude, the angelic host and maybe even Christ himself give glory and praise and honour to God for his judgments, for his justice. Just as the term woe that we saw in chapter 17 and 18, it marks the lowest sorrow and wretchedness. So the term hallelujah used in verses 1 and 3, 4 and 6, it marks the highest note of praise. In fact, it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. It's saved for this moment right here. Hallelujah. Heaven declares God's justice to be good, not least for vindicating his name, but for rescuing his people. You see, in God's dealing with humanity, judgment and salvation, they're like a double-sided coin, hand and glove. Whether it was the Egyptians judged in the Exodus, resulting in God's rescued people from slavery, or whether it was the wicked Canaanites purged from the land to make way for God's holy people and temple, or on the cross where sin and death were condemned in order to make way for full access to God to worship him in spirit and truth, Judgment and salvation have always gone hand in hand. And so it is here. Look with me at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It's out of the judgment, you see, that salvation appears. Out of the judgment of God's enemies that here this beautiful bride is presented. And this is the moment that all of creation has been heading towards the long uh, promised wedding feast promised long ago in God's word I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 61 and 62 and we'll read that now it says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation he has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels you shall be called by a new name the mouth of the Lord uh, that the mouth of the Lord will give 
You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You see, the refining fire of God's judgment burns away any dross or impurity and it brings into sharp focus this beautiful being. Unlike Babylon, this bride adorns herself in beautiful apparel, fine linen, bright and clean, so like, a, like a diamond against a black cloth or <clears throat> white snow against a night sky. Her splendour is seen all the more against the counterpart, the ugliness of her, uh, of her counterpart. And there's not only a contrast in, in clothing, but of conduct as well. You see, the, the prostitute was marked out by her sexual immorality. Her name was the mother of prostitutes and abominations of the earth. <clears throat> Verse 8 tells us that the fine linen here uh, represents the righteous acts of God's people. In Revelation, white is often associated uh, with those who conquer, Nike. Those who continue to bear testimony to Jesus Christ in the midst of an evil and wicked generation. Here's this bride. She is glorious. She's pure. And she is utterly loved by her bridegroom. And I can't help but imagine uh, that as this letter was read out in those first century house churches. Uh, and, and as God's people heard it being read that they were tempted to see Babylon as more real than this vision the power and the persuasion of the perverse prostitute seemed more real than the vision of this wedding ceremony the idolatry of the roman empire the rampant sexual immorality of the culture its wickedness and its bloodthirsty violence and that's to say nothing of their own sins and temptations and trials and inward struggles god's people needed this vision they needed this reality to show them where history is heading what is true it was this vision they needed to motivate them for another week of opposition, of struggle and of life in a wicked world. And I don't know about you, but this is what I need this week. As we limp into another lockdown week, will this vision of our future reality help you as you wonder how on earth you're going to face the same tasks this week, the family dynamics, the the, the work and the appointments and the illness and the pain and the bereavement and the loneliness. You see, this vision is given to us to motivate us for a life of praise and joy, even in the midst of trials. Have you ever noticed how so many films end in a marriage or a proposal for a marriage? I haven't read many of Shakespeare's plays, but apparently most of his plays end in not just one marriage, but multiple marriages there's something deep inside the human heart inside the human psyche that longs for this moment but the reality is that human marriage is but a dim reflection of this eschatological glorious marriage this end time glorious nuptial and Christians we've actually experienced something of this a taste of this this side of glory haven't we when God speaks to us in his word or or the joy of corporate praise do you remember when we were able to do that or, or the peace when we share in fellowship or the heights of love that we experience in communal prayer when we experience the oneness of the spirit 
And yet these things are only a taste of the coming reality. Every ache, brother and sister, filled. Every joy exceeded. Every pain removed. Every wonder brought to an unimaginable height. And all satisfaction and longing met in him, the great bridegroom who will rejoice over you. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What a vision. What a thought to motivate us to live for him this week, to live in this dark and wicked world, to motivate us to love one another, to love the stranger. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, here's an invitation for you. Verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. <clears throat> Suppers in the ancient world, they were shared with friends, not with enemies. Uh, and because of our sin, we by nature are God's enemies. We need to be made right with him. And Jesus Christ, in the place of sinners, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. The Bible calls him the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so God in this verse here is calling you to be his friend. He is inviting you to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You need to turn from your sin, trust in Christ, the sacrificial Lamb, to be cleansed and to be forgiven. And if you want to find out more about that, please, please do get in touch. It's not easy to follow Christ though. Our enemies are real, fierce and persuasive. God's people face lies and slander and persecution and in many cases martyrdom. I honestly wonder how the saints in Rome or in the early church or even today in places like North Korea and Pakistan and Afghanistan, how do they hold to the testimony of Jesus? Or even here in 21st century Edinburgh with, with its promises of material joy or sexual bliss or moral freedom, how are we to live out verse 10? How are we to worship God whilst holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, it's by this, by looking at life through the lens of verses 11 to 21. That's our second point. We're to live in light of our enemy's destruction. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but Revelation has long been a book that has scared me, and not least because I didn't quite understand it or understand how to interpret it, but actually the description of God's enemies are vivid. They're powerful and they're evil. Revelation doesn't seem to sugarcoat it, in fact, it seems to bring it out into the, into the open. The description of the beast smacks of power and glory and of strength. And it's really easy to feel dwarfed in the face of this kind of an enemy. And their weapons as well. Satan's dual tactic of, of deception as he leads people away by false religion and false philosophies. And of destruction, the threat and the persecution of physical harm, they're enough to make the strongest man cower. And by our own strength, we really are powerless. Psalm 8 tells us that in the face of our enemies, human help is worthless. Human effort alone cannot defeat the powers of evil anti-God regimes or false teaching. A different warrior is required altogether. And that is exactly what John sees in verses 11 to 16. And to be honest, words can't really describe the brilliance of this scene. This image should be one that wipes away every fear or doubt or uncertainty that plagues the hearts of God's people. It's that moment in the film when 
whoever it is, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, I'm showing my age there, or Jason Bourne or James Bond, whoever it is, the protagonist, the action hero comes in at that pivotal moment and you absolutely know that here's the turn of the tide. The enemies stand no chance. The good guy's going to win. It's like that, but times a billion. <clears throat> There's perhaps no greater description of the kingly majesty of Christ in all of Scripture than in these verses right here. John has threaded together this, uh, this uber image of Christ as victor, using Old Testament image after image, He's heaven's undefeated warrior, this victorious king and righteous judge that is returning to utterly vindicate his name and to destroy his enemies. He sees everything with his blazoned eyes, piercing as he, as he looks at the intentions of the human heart and the plans of his enemies, knowing that none of them will prevail. Nothing gets past him. Unlike the beast in chapter 13 who wore ten crowns, symbolising his uh, seeming rule, this warrior has many crowns, innumerable. He's the true sovereign, truly in control. Unlike our enemy's weapons of deception, this warrior's weapon is truth. The sharp double-edged sword, the living word of his mouth with which he uses to strike down the nations, reminds us of Psalm 2's messianic king, the one who comes to rule with his iron scepter, who will defeat his enemies utterly. Look at verse 13. There's this rich passage uh, taken directly from the book of Isaiah of this warrior with his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. Uh, in that passage in Isaiah, it talks about uh, this warrior being the only one who could bring salvation to his people and the only one who could destroy his enemies. He looked around, but there was no other. He was the only one, so he did it himself. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The fruit of sin and darkness and wickedness is here trodden out and, pour, and God's wrath is poured out upon it. This image is meant to help us see that there is no chink in the armour of this warrior. There's no niggle or doubt as to whether he'll be successful. There's also a, a, a horrid irony in this passage. If you look at verse 17, it's like a dark parody, unlike the wedding supper of the Lamb where we saw feasting and joy and praise. This is kind of like an anti-supper and it, and it takes the language directly from Ezekiel 39 where God utterly destroys the wicked and he cleanses the land of every enemy, every last morsel of wickedness. And the only eating here is done by birds on carcasses. And you can't quite see it in the NIV translation, but, but the ESV helps us see uh, uh, another kind of layer to it. It should be up on the screen now. Verse 18 says, come gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both great and small. These enemies are feeble and weak in the face of this awesome warrior they're nothing but flesh weak failing fit for the birds the writings on the wall and that's the sense that we should get from this passage because when the battle does come it's it's even an anti-climax it's no it's no lord of the rings it's no battle of waterloo that the forces are not matched they're not equal far from it you see no sooner do the enemies seek to wage war against this warrior 
then verse 20 comes into play and the beast was captured for all of his pretense of power and for all of the beast's claim to authority and rule when faced with the true sovereign they simply melt away like a like a packet of skips being thrown into the Niagara Falls there is absolutely nothing they can do victory is not only certain but it's simple for this warrior at least and here's the point our enemies look strong they look fierce they seem overwhelming but for Christ the king of kings and the lord of lords the undisputed heavenly warrior of verses 11 to 16 they are snowflakes they're a deck of cards built on sinking sand with the breath of his mouth gone and so the big takeaway for us as God's people from this passage is to see our enemies in the face of their ultimate defeat. Christ has defeated our ultimate enemies of sin and Satan and death on the cross. Yes, sin still exists. Satan still roams around like a roaring dragon. And yet the slave-like power that once held sway over God's people is gone. It reminds me of Romans 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Brothers and sisters, we're not going to face an Armageddon-like war this week, but our enemies do seem formidable. Whether it's the sin that lurks in you, calling you to cut down your husband or your wife with that, with that vicious word, or to click on that website again, or to spend that money that you shouldn't again, or to pursue that relationship that you shouldn't, or to slack off when the boss isn't looking. Sin seems powerful, temptation seems powerful, but Romans 6 tells us that it's no longer our slave master. And we don't need to wait until this final day to see victory. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. And amazingly, this warrior, look at the means by which he conquers. Verse 21, the rest were killed by the sword coming from the mouth of the rider on the horse. He conquers with truth, with the truth of his word. The word uh, true in Revelation actually occurs just 10 times, but three of them are in the passage that we've just seen. And they refer each time to God's character and to the word that reveals that character. God is truth. He defines truth, and which means he's zealous for truth. And he's given us his truth to live by his perfect word. And so here are some things that we can do in light of that this week. Just three things. Believe truth, speak truth and reject error. We want to be those that believe truth. Christians can so often be weighed down by untruth or circumstances and situations that we think are completely out of God's control. We believe lies. And so we need to meditate on this vision. We need to let the truth of Revelation 19 speak into our lives and marinate deep into our souls. And it requires purposeful intention. We need to take hold of mistruth or half-truths. And we need to speak and think truth into these situations. So meditate on things like scripture's promises. Truths like you are the bride of Christ. 
God loves you. Sin does not reign over you. Satan is a defeated enemy and evil will not ultimately prevail. Believe these truths, brothers and sisters. We're to speak truth, speak it to ourselves, but actually where better else to do this than in community and speaking it to one another? Why not join a growth group or international fellowship or a young adults ministry? Growth group is in, um, these small groups are amazing ways to speak truth to one another. There's something powerful about hearing the truth from the mouth of another. And even if it is virtual, I would encourage you, let's, let's join together in this opportunity. Maybe you might want to start a one-to-one. Though you might feel locked and weighed in by lockdown, God's word is not chained. And lastly, uh, we're to be those who reject error. So as a community, we're to be passionate about doctrine, about truth taught in our community. And so this is why I would encourage you to check what I'm saying against his word. And if there's something that you don't quite agree with, please message me. But we're also to be wary of false ideas and dangerous ideas that flow into our homes and into our minds, whether it's through what's being taught in our children's schools, uh, whether it's through social media or the larger culture. The enemy seeks to deceive and to divide. And so we must be on our guard. As I close, we're given this letter, brothers and sisters, to give us a vision of Christ's absolute victory and of our final destiny. So let this motivate you this week. So proverbially lay it before you on your kitchen pinboard. There will be forces out this week that seem to ro- uh, that seek to rob you of joy and of assurance. Lies that we might be tempted to believe about God, about his character, about his rule and reign and about our position before him. So let this letter uh, show you what those forces truly are, defeated enemies, and what your reality truly is, the bride of Christ. Long for that wedding day and live in light of Christ's ultimate victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the glorious victor, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one whom speaks words of truth. He himself is the truth. Uh, And Lord, he will defeat his enemies decisively. He's already done so on the cross and it will be fully and finally decisive uh, in that end day. Until then, Lord, um, cast a vision in our mind for that glorious event of our wedding day when we will be in your presence, free from any stain of sin or guilt with you for eternity. Lord, help us as we face our battles uh, each day, whatever they be. Speak to us through your word in the way that only you can. And we pray that our lives will be to the praise and the glory of your name. Amen.